Uh, so let's read chapter, uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 31. Pray, and then we'll reflect on it this morning. This is a little longer, but it moves fast, and I'll read with, I won't drone, I promise. Acts chapter 15, 1 through 31. Let's hear God's word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from the blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced 
because of its encouragement. Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, as we reflect this morning on this uh, powerful passage of Scripture, we want to understand the way in which uh, we can work together as a church uh, to discern and follow your word and your will in our lives. Because, Lord, we want to be uh, a people, a church, uh, that adheres closely to you and that exists through time so that the faith can be preserved and sent out among our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids uh, until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Father, we know that this will not occur uh, unless your Holy Spirit blesses the word to us. So therefore, we pray that you would give us minds to understand, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word. May it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we need to consider this morning is the issue that sparked the debate we just read about in Acts 15. Uh, we're told that while Paul and Barnabas were planting churches in Antioch, that's just previously, that verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the issue was whether or not Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now at first reading, we probably don't understand why that claim would cause all the debates and all the traveling and all the letters that it did. Isn't the answer just like, no, that's obviously not true? Uh, well, the reality was the answer wasn't obvious, not because heresy had blinded the church or there was a different gospel that was being preached by these folk. No, the answer was unclear because at this point in church history, the church and the synagogue, as I've talked about before, had not yet split apart. And the church had to wrestle with both the biblical distinction between Jews and Gentiles, and a Gentile is just everyone who isn't Jewish. And it also had to wrestle with the 500-year-old, at this point, theological debates within Judaism about what it meant for Gentiles to convert and worship the God of the Bible. And without getting too far into the weeds, at this point in history, Jews had a variety of different answers, a variety of different ways of thinking about what it meant for Gentiles to convert to the worship of the one true God, one of which we see in our passage this morning, which was that Gentiles needed to be circumcised. And since Christianity preaches the arrival of God's Jewish Messiah, and since we receive the Old Testament as our authoritative scripture, and since the church is intentionally expanding its community to include Gentile believers of that Jewish Messiah, the question became, does Jesus want Gentile converts to be circumcised? And that answer wasn't obvious. Paul and Barnabas said no, uh, but some, of, some said yes, like the men who came from Judea. So at this point in history, uh, the issue isn't heresy. The issue is genuine confusion and disagreement about what it looks like for Gentiles to follow Jesus right now. So given past practice, given all of the changes Jesus has brought, like what does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus now? 
And I say all this because I want us to see that not every debate is about exposing wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, there can be genuine confusion and disagreement over what faithfulness looks like. And that was the case here. And that disagreement was intractable, unsolvable in that congregation. And so look at what happens in verse 2. We're told that after a debate that couldn't get resolved, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So in our church, as I think all of you probably know, we have a session, which is the ordained elders of a church. Uh, sometimes issues arise in a congregation that are important and they do not have any clear answer. And the debate ends up causing division, that ends up causing pain. And when that ha happens, the elders, the session, they can bring that issue to what we call the presbytery and then ultimately to the general assembly. And just so you guys know, I think it's important to remind ourselves from time to time, uh, a presbytery is all the churches in a given geographical region, and ours is all the churches in Michigan, and Ontario, and us. We're just hooked in to them, to the redheaded stepchild. Uh, no, we're deeply loved, I'm sure. Uh, and the General Assembly, just so you know, is all of the churches in our denomination. Uh, Presbyterians have set ourselves up so that we can mirror kind of what we see here in Acts chapter 15. When a divisive issue arises, our elders can ask the Presbytery for guidance, and if that doesn't help, our presbytery can ask the General Assembly for guidance. Which is why, and I'll point this out again as we go, you'll see Luke, who's the author of Acts, say that the church sent representatives to the church, and that the church wrote back to the churches. Right? The church went and spoke to a bigger group of churches, maybe what we call the General Assembly in Jerusalem, and then that church responded back to the churches. It's all a connected group of believers and leaders. It's an institution working to bring clarity to this very important question of discipleship. Okay, so the issue is, do Gentile Christians need to be circumcised? Let's look briefly at the debate. Uh, in verses 3 to 4, we hear a little about the group's travels and their missionary reports along the way. And then we get to verses 5 through 7, and we read this, and I'll read those again. Verse 5. Uh, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate. Um, I'm going to stop there and just sit, point out some things. Uh, it's good to see that those who disagreed with Paul and Barnabas are called explicitly believers. And I think it's helpful to notice that there was much debate on this. Uh, now, that can mean that the debate went on forever or that the debate was very heated or both. And as a Presbyterian who's been in these kind of debates, it's both. And uh, one hopes that there's more uh, light than heat. Um, one more thing to notice. The apostles, notice the apostles did not just resolve the debate. Sometimes we can think that if we just could like pull the apostles forward in time, that we would have all the answers to our discipleship questions. Uh, my friends, that wasn't even the case in their own time. <laughs> in fact, it's not even clear that 
all of the apostles were on the same side, at least not at first. And I, I bring this up because I, we need to see that questions of discipleship and loyalty to Jesus and doing what's best are just not always obvious. There's real complexity and real difficulty because as a general rule, a Christian leaders, elders, and pastors in our case, apostles and elders in their case, they want to do what is right, but what that right thing is is not immediately clear. And that was the case here. Though eventually the church lands on a decision, and I just want to take a, a big picture look at how they achieved clarity and arrived at their decision. First, they faced and acknowledged what Jesus was actually doing among them. That's the middle of verses 7 through 9. I'm going to read that again. So starting in the middle of verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter, he stands up and he brings up both his mission and the kind of Gentile conversion Jesus blessed in the past. And his point is, I was appointed to preach to the Gentiles so that they would hear and believe. I wasn't appointed to circumcise them into the faith. I was appointed to preach them into the faith. And you also know, brothers, uh, that the ministry that I was given was blessed because like us circumcised Jewish Christians, those uncircumcised Gentile Christians also received the Holy Spirit. And that shows us that our relationship to Jesus as circumcised Jewish Christians, as uncircumcised Gentile Christians, that they are equally valid in our Lord Jesus' eyes because both of us received the Holy Spirit. My ministry bore the fruit of conversion that Jesus blessed without circumcision. Now, even though there is a, a biblical argument, which we're going to talk about in a, in a minute, uh, I know that arguments from experience, which is what Peter is making here, they can make us uncomfortable, even when an apostle is making them. Uh, let me just say that I generally share our uh, discomfort with arguments from experience. Um, but uh, when there is a huge divisive debate about what the Bible says, like there was in this case, sometimes a way forward into better understanding of what the Bible says is to step back and ask, what is Jesus actually blessing? What is Jesus actually doing? What is actually growing the church numerically, because conversions are important, they're a goal of ministry, and also growing it spiritually. That is, what is conforming people to the image of Christ and growing them in maturity? And by the way, in verse 12, when we read, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, this is just Paul and Barnabas jumping onto the same point, saying, hey, it's not just Peter's ministry to the Gentiles that looks like that. Ours looks like this. The reality of Jesus' work among you in Jerusalem, he is emulating and doing the same thing 
in Antioch and Phoenicia and Ephesus and Thessalonica. Our Gentile converts who are not circumcised, they are loving their fellow Christians, both Jew and, and Gentile. They're conforming themselves to the Bible. They're devoting themselves to the worship of our Lord. And, and they're so concerned about being devoted to Jesus that they sent us here to find out if their devotion is missing this practice of circumcision. See, so in other words, their gospel ministry to the Gentiles without circumcision is bearing the fruit of love and unity and worship and devotion that can only be the product of the Spirit of Christ among them. So there's the argument here from experience. Peter also adds one more element as well. He doesn't just bring up what was being blessed. He also brings up what is unduly burdensome. So in verse 10, he adds this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? See, Peter recognizes that any required practice of devotion carries with it some kind of burden. Some burdens are light, like the burden of regular prayer and weekly church attendance. Not a difficult burden. Some burdens are hard like loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you. Peter says circumcision represents an extremely difficult burden that even we haven't been able to carry very well. Why would we put it on the Gentile Christians when their relationship to Jesus doesn't seem to need it? This is something that elders have to think about, and that has actually been a very important part of Presbyterian history which is keeping Christians from being burdened with things the Bible doesn't require. In our tradition, we call it the freedom of conscience. Peter is saying, let's keep our Gentile Christian brothers and sisters' consciences free from constraints that Jesus doesn't seem to think they need in order to love him well. So there's the argument from experience of obvious Christian growth. There's the argument from freedom of conscience. Why require something that they haven't needed until now? There's two more arguments that we need to consider. Both come from James, and they are the biblical argument and the witness argument. Okay, so the biblical argument. So in verse 13, we read again here, after they finished speaking, James replied, brother, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Here's what James is saying that Peter's ministry to the Gentiles is being blessed should not surprise us because that fits with what God said in Amos 9, 11 to 12. And that's what James quotes. Amos says that the day will come when God will rebuild the tent of David so that Israel can live with God in security again. And clearly Jesus is the one who rebuilt that tent. But Amos also says God won't just do that for the Jews. He won't just do that for Israel, but also the nations, or as we've been calling them, the Gentiles. The Hebrew word for nations is just Gentiles. And how does Amos say that the Gentiles will seek the Lord? 
How will they be included in that tent as they seek the Lord? By having God's name called upon them. In Amos, God doesn't say, those who call upon God's name. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, God says, those who are called by, have his name called on them. Those who are called by my name. And who are those who are called by God's name? Who are those who have God's name called upon them? That's those who are baptized, right? That's when God puts his name on us. I baptize you into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So James's point is that the Bible doesn't include Gentile Christians through circumcision. It includes them through baptism. It includes them by the giving of God's name to them. Which is why Peter's and Paul's and Barnabas's ministry to the Gentiles has been blessed. They are conforming to the word of God. Jesus is simply doing what he said they would do. The gospel is being preached. They believe. They receive God's name and baptism. They're part of God's people. But then notice that uh, James adds one more thing in verses 19 to 21. He adds this. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every, every Sabbath in the synagogues. Uh, we're running low on time, so let me just say that the things James suggests for Gentiles to do stay away from idolatry and sexual morality and keep kosher. We're going to talk about that in a second. That recommendation is also rooted in historic Jewish practice. So in first century Judaism, uh, another and more common way to conceive of Gentile conversion was to have them keep what they would sometimes call the Noahide laws. Deny idols, flee sexual immorality, keep kosher. And they'd have them do that rather than circumcise them. And this seems to be because, not only because keeping kosher was a way to be sort of very visibly separate from the surrounding world, but also, and I think more especially because it opened up their connection to their Jewish brothers and sisters. I mean, have any of you ever had any dietary restrictions? Like, it can be awkward sometimes when you're at someone's house and you can't eat with them and they can't eat with you because you have these dietary needs that you don't share together. I think there's pragmatism in this requirement. Keeping kosher lets us eat freely together, which is a fundamental part of human community. Now from there, notice what James says at the end. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. James recognizes that wherever Gentile Christians are, there will be Jewish synagogues. And he's also probably recognizing, as I've talked about on and off before, that at this point in time, Christians worship Jesus in the synagogues alongside non-Messiah-believing Jews. And they did that in some parts of the world up till about the 300s. So instead of thinking of these you know, gatherings of Christians in sort of separate houses away from one another, we need to think of them instead as, I mean, that's happening too, but it's also within the synagogue itself. Jesus worshiping Christians, worshiping alongside non-Jesus worshiping Jews as the message of Christ is going out. This is a different time in, in history. 
So to put that together, I think what we hear James saying is like, look, there's two reasons to want Gentile Christians to circumcise. There's the conversion reason and there's the community reason. Uh, we've already seen that conversion to Jesus doesn't require circumcision. Uh, in fact, it would be a burden to require it because Jesus doesn't require it. But there's clearly also the community reason, the fellowship reason, which is how do we live respectfully within a community where not everyone shares our commitment to Jesus, but where we share so much else with them? Well, like, why don't we just do what by this point has been the standard way of showing respect for about 500 years to the Jewish synagogue community? It's not overly burdensome, and it's a blessing, and it's a witness to Jesus, which is just keep the Noahide laws. Why don't we just do that? And that brings us very quickly to our third point, which is the answer. So just to point this out again, in verse 22, we're told that this solution, it seems good to the whole church, and so they sent this letter off to a whole bunch of churches. So again, all these elders and congregations and people they're all called the church together, and they're called the church individually, or as individual congregations. The institution is working to grow discipleship here. You can see that so clearly. And since this letter reflects James' advice, I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. I'm just going to make one comment on the letter and one on its reception. Uh, as far as the letter, I want you to see in verse 28 that they're concerned to lay an appropriate burden on the church. We're going to lay no greater burden than these on you, they say. And that burden, except for the kosher thing, which give me one more second, and we'll talk about that a bit more, I think that makes sense to us. I think it's important to say again that all forms of loyalty and worship to Jesus represent a burden of some kind. There's something we have to do. Faithfulness requires uh, obedience over time, because all forms of loyalty and love and worship, they all require things of they require us to act in certain ways and to act at certain times or to refrain from acting in certain ways in certain times. So the goal of elders working together to figure out how to follow Jesus now is not to free us from all burdens, but to lay the appropriate kind of burden on us for Jesus' sake. Right? Jesus doesn't say, I have no yoke. He says his yoke is easy and light. Right? Jesus himself describes discipleship as a series of burdens. It's just not crushing burdens. It's a yoke that is freeing and life-giving. And, uh, and in that light, notice the reception. The church responded to this burden well. In verse 31, we're told, and when they read it, that is these churches, these congregations, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Uh, why do they view this letter as an encouragement? Right? There's no attaboys in this letter. There's no good job, guys. Uh, well, I think it's because for Christians, when you've been confused and anxious about how to live for Jesus on about a particular issue, and then you get some clarity, like that's encouraging. Because now you know how to make Jesus happy. And, and once you know the direction to go, you can walk with faith and with confidence that Jesus is pleased. The work of the institution brought joy because it brought clarity to discipleship. This is how you can follow Christ. Oh, praise God. I'll do that. I'm going to follow him that way. So with that, I want to offer kind of two quick reflections here to conclude. Uh, first, let me just reflect by talking for a second on the keeping kosher for a second. Specifically, why do we not keep kosher now? 
because if you're someone who reads the Bible and you'd read this, you'd think, like, shouldn't we be doing this too? I'm a Gentile Christian. Is this not how I should order my life? Uh, here's the answer. Um, we are not worshiping in a synagogue or as parts of a primarily Jewish community anymore. Like my friends, times change. And sometimes practices that have lots of value or had lots of value in the past end up not having much value once context changes. Kosher for Gentile Christians was never part of gospel belief. It was never intrinsic to it. It was a part of Gentile witness, as James himself says, and showing respect to the community that they were in at the time. And when those communities parted ways, that aspect of their witness, that aspect of our witness, changed. And this is something that is really important for us to hear, especially as Presbyterians. We Presbyterians, we are rock stars at tradition, right? I'm generally a big fan of tradition. I was a history major, for crying out loud. Like, I live in the past. Uh, But as you can see here, even in the Bible, traditional practices that James himself used to create a solution to the divisions that the church was experiencing— that just stopped being useful. It may even have stopped being useful as early as John started to write his letters. This portion in Acts predates John's writing by probably 25 years, which means it's okay. It's okay for us to ask, is this practice still something Jesus wants us to do? Is this still useful? Is this still helpful? Is this still good? Is this something that Jesus is blessing and is it something that's making him happy? Is it something that's helping our community? Or is it just a thing we're doing? Those questions are okay. And it's okay to say, yes, Jesus is still blessing it. Let's keep doing it. And it's okay to say, you know what? No, he's not. That's okay too. I think that's important to have that freedom as Presbyterians who do tradition so well. And then finally, I just want to point out that um, last thought, that you can... Not only can you see the the church structures at work here, you can also see how they helped shape and maintain the faith through time. Because of the church's institution, because it existed as a connected unit with officers and discussion and letters and communication, questions about practice came to a resolution. Godliness actually was grown. Maturity actually occurred. And the entire church was blessed. And the faith spread. And you can see that throughout Acts. This important event had to happen so that as the church spread to more and more Gentile areas where there weren't any Jewish communities, they understood what was being asked of those who were called to faith in Jesus. The faith was able to spread because of the work of the institution. And uh, and that's the goal that we have for Presbyterianism, Presbyterianism as well. At its best, Presbyterianism is aimed at churches working together so that we can faithfully love Jesus together and extend the faith together through time to our children and grandchildren and to our neighbors forever. And And I'm very thankful that for all of 
all of our faults and failings and the tragic history of the church that it sometimes is, that we get to be a part of something that Jesus does use, as we see here in Acts 15 and other times as well in history, to actually bless his people with a growing understanding of Jesus and how to follow him by faith. Amen? Uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us the gift of being connected to our fellow churches and for your Spirit's work in helping us together discern how to live faithfully for you and with you. Please, please bless our relationship with the churches in our denomination and also in our area so that together we would help each other know the love of God and walk according to your commands. And Father, as we do this, please bless the gospel among us so that sinners will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth that is in our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, let's sing.